0: You are listening to DermCast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. I have been working with physician assistants for about 18 years, and a couple of years ago I wrote the book that this uh, lecture is based upon, Act Like a Doctor, Think Like a Patient, and so I owe you an apology to begin with, since I ought to have called it, Act Like a Doctor, or Like a Physician Assistant, or a Nurse Practitioner, or any mid-level practitioner that you choose, but still think like a patient, except that my publisher would have none of it. It didn't fit on the cover. So whenever I refer to doctor, please insert yourself because I'm speaking to you as clinicians. You take care of patients same as I do, same as we do, and uh, uh, we all uh, have similar challenges. And uh, you'll bear with me if I press the wrong button. The first thing you notice about Marina is her eyes, which are so stunning that you have to stop yourself from letting your jaw drop down onto your sternum and gaping like a fool because they are so striking. That's the first thing you notice about her eyes. The second thing you notice if you're a dermatologist is that they are scaly, red, and lichenified. And you have to ask yourself why a woman this striking in appearance would walk around with scaly eyelids. That's not even why she's in the office. She actually came in because she has a small pigmented spot that for some reason got her attention. It's of no importance. So I say to her, uh, by the way, what about those eyelids? And she said, well, they're kind of itchy, and I find that I scratch them all the time, and I've damaged myself, I guess. So the question we must ask ourselves, which I would invite you to ask yourselves, is why would she say that, and how did she get this far in life without anybody disabusing her of this idea that she has somehow permanently damaged her skin and that there's nothing useful to be done about it. George Bernard Shaw was an Irish dramatist who lived most of his life in England. He was a a big curmudgeon. He wrote a number of plays. Perhaps the most famous one is Pygmalion, which was made into the musical My Fair Lady. But he also was known for his one-line cynical zingers, one of which is on the screen in front of you. Every profession is a conspiracy against the laity. He wrote that in part in the introduction to and in a play he wrote called The Doctor's Dilemma somewhat over 100 years ago. Like most cynical remarks, it is over the top and unfair, but it contains more than a germ of truth. And I'd like to explore with you what the nature of that truth might be and how it might relate to what we do. So here's a question that you may not have asked yourselves. You consider yourselves professionals. What is a profession? A profession is in a technical field that requires intense study. You've got to learn a lot. And it's also a a commitment to public-spirited ethical behavior. In other words, a profession, unlike, say, a business, which is in it to make money, is not in it only to make money. It's to make society and the clients better. So for instance, there's the accounting profession, there's the legal profession, there's the clergy, and then of course, there's the medical profession. There are other professions as well, but these will give us a place to start. So what are the terms of a professional relationship? Well, first of all, you have to decide what expertise we have, what are the goals of what the professional does, how do you know the professional is doing a good job, what language the professional uses, and deciding which questions the professional is supposed to ask and how to answer them. But to put it more graphically, basically the professional says to the client, I know and you don't. And not only that, the professional says, I know what's important to know and you don't. And I decide what words to use and what they mean. And I decide which questions to answer and I decide whether or not I'm doing a good job, and most of all, I tell you what you need to know. What that means to you is not my concern. Now, I know what you're probably thinking at this point, or ought to be thinking, and that is you would say with Miss Piggy, moi, that's condescending and paternalistic. I would never do anything like that. I'm much more compassionate than that. Well, I would say to you, ladies and gentlemen, don't be so sure not only that you don't do that, but that you don't necessarily ought to do that. For instance, consider the question, as a professional, I know what's important, and you don't know what's important. Now, consider the accounting profession. Supposing your accountant says to you that a certain expenditure is deductible, and this is what the IRS has done in certain cases relating to what you want to do. Now, you could say, well, you're the expert accountant, I'm gonna take your word for it, or maybe you'd say, no, I'm going to be smarter than you. I'm going to look it up and make up my mind myself. Now, you could do that as a client that's within your right. The question is, how clever would you be if you did that? Or consider the legal profession. Your lawyer says, what you just did is something that could get you into serious trouble. And this is what you ought to do. This is how you ought to plead. This is what the judge who you're appearing before is likely to be beha- how they're likely to behave. And you could say, nah, I'm smarter than you. I don't have to listen to you. I'm going to plead it my way. The lawyers, as you probably know, have an expression. Any man who represents himself any, it has a fool for a client. So here's a question that I bet you've never asked yourself. And that is, what is the difference between a person and a toaster? Do You ever ask that question? OK, here's an answer. If you know how to fix a toaster, the toaster does not have to agree with you. Or to shift the metaphor, I I didn't really need the previous slide, but I really like the graphic about the toaster. What's the difference between a person and a carburetor? If a mechanic knows how to fix a carburetor, the carburetor does not have to agree with him. Self-evident, yes? A patient who disagrees with your treatment will find a way not to use it. If you haven't noticed this in your clinical career, then you are not paying attention. Not only that, treatments are more likely to work if you actually use them. Now, let's break down some of the things that, that characterize the professional-client relationship. The professional says, I decide which questions I'm going to answer. Now, in this graphic, in case you're not sure, the person on the right is the doctor or the physician assistant. Now, what does the doctor or physician assistant or mid-level provider think that it's their job to do? To make the right diagnosis and to prescribe the best treatment, right? Straightforward, maybe hard to do, but that's what we want to do. What does the patient want when they come to your office? They want to get better, right? So, you would think that there is congruence between what the doctor or a provider wants to do and what the patient wants, but not necessarily because it is entirely possible to do the right thing and to make the patient worse, and it is also extremely possible to do nothing and make the patient better. So what do I mean by that? Is that just sort of an empty type of quip? What do I mean by saying you can do the right thing and make the patient worse? So last Wednesday afternoon, just before the end of the clinic session, a young woman I will call Sarah, who's 20 years old, comes in together with her mother, She's a student at the Worcester Polytechnic Institute going into her senior year. So she sits down on the examining table. She's got a pinkish complexion. She's got pimples on both cheeks. She takes out a tube of metronidazole cream and puts it on her lap. So I look at her, and I look at her mother, and I say, the first thing I want to tell you is that you don't have rosacea. So what is the first thing that she does? She bursts into tears. What? Why would she burst into tears? First of all, Dr. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, how do I know she has, she thinks she has rosacea? Because she's got a tube of metronidazole cream on her, on her lap. Uh, so why would she become so emotional over something so banal as what, what I just said? Well, What does a 20-year-old woman do when you tell her she has rosacea? She goes to the internet. And she sees on the internet that she can't drink red wine she can't have alcohol, she can't have spices, and she really needs to cut down on her exercise. So if you're a 20-year-old woman who looks at the rest of her life, and what picture does she see on the website? She sees a, an ugly middle-aged man with rhinophyma, because that's what's on rosacea websites. So if you were 20 and you saw that, what would you think? And that's the whole rest of your life uh, going before you. I'm. If you, you could forget about the whole rest of my talk. Uh, All of the witticisms and silly graphics. Just think about Sarah and think about how confoundedly easy it is to do something simple and straightforward, metronidazole is not bad for acne, but you can do something simple, straightforward, and correct, and make your patient infinitely worse without trying. The flip side of that is actually the favorite thing that I have in in doing clinical medicine, and that is doing nothing and making the patient better. What bothers the patient? Is it the presenting symptom, the history of the present illness, the chief complaint? No, it is not a tremendously large number of times. The patient may say they are worried about this scaly spot on their elbow. But what they're really worried about is that Aunt Tilly had a scaly spot on her elbow and she died three weeks later. Or that she developed psoriasis and had arthritis and was in a wheelchair, or any number of other things that you don't have to take more than 45 seconds to suss out what it is they're actually worried about. And then you don't even have to treat them. I don't mean ever, but an awfully large number of times. That, and as often as, as often as not, you give them a cream, and they don't use it, because now that they know, it doesn't mean what they thought it meant when they come in. They don't even have to care about treating it. Now, of course, I'm not talking about every single patient, but I've been around a long time, and I can tell you that the kind of observation that I just made applying to a little spot that they think is cancer and any number of other similar banal everyday observations that you know as well as I do is that you can do an awful lot of good by figuring out not what the patient says is wrong with them, but what they think the implication of what that is. But you see in professional school, that's not part of the deal. In professional school, they teach you what you think is important. They don't teach you to figure out what the patient thinks is important because that's not part of any professional education. Do you think they teach attorneys what what their client feels about their charge? That wouldn't even make any sense in that context, but for the reasons that I've begun to sketch out for you, it makes a tremendous amount of sense in what you and I do for a living. Now I'm gonna take you on a brief philosophical tour And I'll make it as painless as possible, because I don't like philosophy and I've never read any of it. But I'm going to tell you about medical ontology. You may have heard of a 17th century physician who's got his name on some diseases named Thomas Sydenham, who said that the self-same phenomena that you'd see in Socrates, you'd see in a simpleton. So Socrates is the guy on the left, and the simpleton is the guy on the right. So you may not know the term ontology, but you do know the word entity. Clinical entity, which comes from the same Greek root, which means being. So what is a clinical entity? Here we have a suitcase with L71.8 in it. What's L71.8? Come on, don't you bill? Rosacea. What's L20.81? Another entity floating around in the ether, atopic dermatitis. Anybody who gets this right, gets an all-expense-paid trip to Seattle. <laughs> V91.07 is injury by a burning water ski, first episode. ICD-10 is medical ontology gone mad. Every, what is a clinical entity? It's a condition whose being exists outside of the individual who inhabits it. So we picture the simpleton being invaded by rosacea. That's what medical ontology is. Now, philosophy aside, we couldn't practice without the theory of medical ontology. Why? Because how do you decide what the treatment of choice is for something? You have rosacea. You have rosacea. You have rosacea. I have to know what the right treatment is for rosacea because it has to be a treatment which has been shown to be effective for the condition, regardless of who has it. That's so obvious that we never even think about it. But it's not the only way to think about it. There is a large group of people who don't think this way. And those people are called patients because patients are not ontologists. As far as patients are concerned, they are their own disease. I'm going to skip ahead. How many patients of yours say, I know my body? And if if you ask them to explain what they mean by that, they'll say, well, maybe your treatment works for some people with disease X, but my body is different. It doesn't work for my fill in the blank. Anybody, any of your patients ever say that to you? How about all of them? Because patients are not ontologists. They never heard of Thomas Seidenham. Okay, another example. I tell you what you need to know. What that means to you is not my concern. I gave you a dramatic, if banal, example of Sarah with her rosacea. Where the meaning to her, the doctor who said it was rosacea, was completely oblivious to what the meaning would be to the patient when she said it. It simply wasn't on her agenda. It was a, a, a who, a, in making the diagnosis. Here's a doctor. I'm going to tell you that make a diagnosis. I I'm going to tell you what to do about it. What is the What is the doctor's question to him or herself? What is the diagnosis? And the patient says, what does the diagnosis mean to me? For instance, you have skin cancer. I will never go to the beach again and if you think that's melodramatic first of all you aren't necessarily paying enough attention to what your patients are actually saying and second of all it's not your call it's not my call it, the patient decides what's melodramatic or not and if they are of a mind to interpret it this way they're going to do it and it's our job to figure that out and address it accordingly. Better not to get sun on that scar. This is a particular pet peeve of mine. 50% of surgeons say it, 50% of surgeons don't say it. It's based upon nothing. It's medical folklore based upon nothing. What does the patient do with that instruction? The patient never goes out in the sun again. And don't think that I'm making this up. If you ask your patients, you'll find not everybody listens to us, thank heavens. But the ones who do, if it's a scar, by definition, it's forever. So if they tell you never to get sun on it, that means you never go to the beach again or have a barbecue. Another one of my pet peeves. You have a fungus infection on the penis. Out of penile rashes, what percentage of them are fungal? Five? Three? It's usually atopic balanitis or psoriasis or lichen planus or zoons balanitis. But what does it mean to the patient to be told that they have a fungus on their penis? Well, why would you have sex if you had fungus on the penis? What does it mean in general when you tell people they have fungus? What do they think? If they think they have fungus on their hands, what do they do? They don't shake hands with people. Because it's dirty and disgusting and contagious. That itchy rash is scabies. How many people go into a walk-in clinic and the person sees that they're scratching and there's a line, it's an excoriation 14 feet long and they decide it's a burrow and they tell the patient it's scabies. And the patient says, I have to fumigate my house, dry clean my whole wardrobe, you know what that costs, reapply the scabies cream every time I itch and do it over and over again because they didn't get better because it wasn't scabies. That's a separate issue, but the implication of scabies is that, and you know it. Now, one of the things that you learn when you become a professional without knowing that you're learning it is you learn the terminology, you learn the jargon. If you want an example, If you hear a non-dermatologist, or non-derm PA, use the word maculopapular, you know that they don't know what they're talking about. It's very much like hearing somebody from a foreign country use words that sound like English, but they're not quite, and they don't quite fit. So when we are learning to be professionals, we're learning many things, besides being irritating and condescending. We're also learning to use words our way, and not their way in case you haven't read Alice in Wonderland in a long time. Humpty Dumpty says, words mean what I say they mean and nothing else. And Alice says, can you make words mean anything you want? And he says, the question is which is to be master. That's all. So who gets to choose what words mean? Doctors and patients use the same words to mean different things, different kinds of things. I'm going to go through this quickly because the hour is late and everybody's getting hungry. I'm just going to discuss the immune system. When we use the word the immune system, we're talking about measurable things, whereas patients who are not statisticians are not capable of thinking in this way. So when we say the immune systems, we're talking about cells, we're talking about the spleen, we're talking about antibodies and lymphokines, every one of which can be measured. Now, have you heard your patients use the term my immune system? Of course you have. And how do they use it? When patients say my immune system, they mean my overall state of health, my resistance to all disease. For instance, I get a lot of colds. My immune system must be weak. Won't taking antibiotics or topical steroids weaken my immune system? What do patients mean when they say that? Do they mean that their lymphokines are down? They mean nothing of the sort. They're using the same words to mean something entirely different and that cannot be translated into our language of immune system because we act and think statistically. I will get back to this. In, <clears throat> here, this is an email that I got from one of my patients a couple of years ago. I really can't help think that this condition is related to me since my system, my skin, has always been my weakness, my MO, related to me, my weakness, my MO. This gets back to what we were talking about before, where patients see their body themselves, not the entity way of thinking that you and I are trained in. I will move on ahead. Okay. Uh, I will skip... Anybody ever here use a detox formula? Okay. Do you know what toxicity is? It means badness. It doesn't mean any particular toxin, but uh, we won't have time for that. All right, let's continue. Uh, if I can figure out how to go back. Can I figure out how to go back? All right, never mind. Okay, now here's another, here's a, a point that needs emphasis. I decide Wow there, I can't spell either. Whether or not I can do, I'm, I'm doing a good job and you don't. How do you measure success? How do you know it's working? Should be straightforward, right? There are studies, there are double-blind studies. We're all enjoying to do evidence-based medicine. Yes, everybody wants to do evidence-based medicine. Okay, whenever I had students with me, I would start them off by telling them two ancient jokes. A man walks into a doctor's office snapping his fingers. Why are you doing that, asked the doctor. To keep the elephants away, he says. That's ridiculous, said the doctor. There are no elephants within 3,000 miles of here. You see, says the man, it's working. Here's another one. Stan, I think my right rear directional signal is out. Can you help me check? Sure, Dan, I'll stand behind the car. Okay, give it a try. Okay, Stan, I'm turning it on. Is it working? Yes, no, yes, no. Okay, it's not that funny, but if you think about it, it is. Okay. Now, that, the joking aside, this is our everyday clinical life. Here's a patient who's returning for acne treatment, from with acne treatment. Can you tell whether she's getting better or not? She has marks on her face. Some of them are active, some of them are not. Is she better off than she was? And if so, is it because of the treatment? You think that's an easy question to answer? And even if you think you can answer it, Will your patient agree with you? This is a typical acne study. It happens to be an Epiduo. I have nothing against Epiduo. I just like the colors. And if you look at any acne graph, what do you see? You see, after 12 weeks, the treatment arm is much better than the placebo arm. You see, it's down 70%, and the placebo arm is down 40%. So this is a question that I put to my physician colleagues, and I'll put it to you. Why is it that in 40 years, every ACTI study I have ever seen looks like this? When you consider that the placebo contains nothing, don't you think that once in a while the placebo arm would get worse? Ever? But it never does. It's always down 30 or 40%. So let's give it that. And here is Clarissa. She's got 12 zits. She comes in on day one. And if you give her the treatment arm, after 12 weeks, she only has 3.4 zits. Now, first question, is Clarissa happy? Is she going to pat you on the back and say, you're a terrific doc? Well, she might, but that's not what my patients would do. What my patients say is, I'm still breaking out. It's not working. But continue, let's say Clarissa B, Clarissa had the placebo. She has 7.4 zits. Do you think Clarissa A will say, Doc, you are really something special. I have only 3.4 zits. If I had gotten the placebo, I'd have 7.6. Nobody says that. First of all, there's no controlled experiment. Every patient is his or her own clinical study with an N of 1. So they look at what they're looking like. Why am I making this obvious but silly point? Because even deciding whether active treatment is working depends upon not just the objective changes in the patient's skin, in our case, but in the patient's mind. The patient gets to decide, a lot of the time, whether what we're doing is working, regardless of what the double-blind studies say. New eczema treatments may seem to be available. This is from 2016. This is a drug called Crisabarol, which you now know as Eucrisa. In late-stage studies, roughly half the patients, 50% cleared or nearly cleared, a statistically significant improvement compared to 30 to 41% of patients using moisturizer. Are you kidding me? 50% got better and 41% got better with moisturizer? Am I supposed to be impressed by that? If you make N big enough, you can make anything statistically significant. But how the patient, is the patient or you going to tell whether you're doing anything if that's the level of, 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 of what they call clinical significance? The real problem is we don't know, we all of us, don't know the natural course of disease because we have one patient in front of us, not a statistical sample, and we, the patient wants to know what will happen to them exactly and when. Warts, acne, psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, actinic keratosis, alopecia areata, etc., and etc. I've been around a long time. You haven't been around as long as, long as I have, but you've been around long enough to know that if somebody held a gun to your head at visit one and said, or the patient did, and said, I want to know what my condition will be like one year from now, or I'm gonna blow your brains out, you can't answer. Because I've seen every permutation you can think of. I've seen people whose psoriasis looked terrible when they were nine years old, and I was sure they were in for a lifetime of misery, only to see them 20 years later whatever happened to your psoriasis? Oh, I don't get it anymore. And of course, vice versa. Now, what actual patients actually say, and any of you who's in practice can answer, can attest can to this, at the last visit, I changed the patient's antibiotic from oral minocycline because it wasn't working to oral cefidroxyl. However, he stopped the cefidroxyl because it made me worse. What does made me worse mean? Got two pimples the next day, decided it was a sepidroxyl. He discontinued the clindamycin solution because it made me oily, and he, but he d- used it on his chest because it was working there. In other words, none of this is coherent to me, but it's coherent to him, or else he wouldn't say it. How many patients of yours have said what my patients say to me? I stopped the medicine after three days because it burned, it wasn't working. Steroids are dangerous. It made me worse. My friends and family told me they had bad reactions to it. The internet scared me. My friend used something else they said was better. One of the things that, see, when, they, when you go to law school, they teach you the law, right? When you go to medical school or PA school, they teach you what medicine teaches you but they don't teach you what everybody else in the world is telling your patient before they come in to see you, and how the patient is going to basically compete your ideas against what they've heard from anyone else. All of these things happen all the time. I'm not saying that they can't be addressed, but I'm saying that they have to be addressed If you really think that the patient ought to take what you want to give them, you have to be prepared for them to either explicitly or implicitly, without sharing with you that that's what they're doing, telling you why they disagree with you. Because if you don't pay attention to that and just pretend that they're going to listen to what you say, then you're not fooling the patient, but you are fooling yourself. So I always told my students, if the patient comes in don't ask them how they're using the pay- the, what you gave them. Ask them what they're actually using, because it's so much easier to talk when your foot is not in your mouth. How is the cephidroxyl working? Oh, doctor, I stopped that two years ago. This peculiar graphic needs to be explained, which I will do in a moment. It gets to this question of what's important and what's not. Who gets to decide what's important to know? So one of the exercises I have always, always done with my students are, what are the most important things to know about topical steroids? So most students come in and they've got something like this. They, they say to them, here's a certain steroid, fluoro, beta, supercalifagulistic, .064%. What do, what do we know about this creek? So they take out their, their paper, Sometimes it goes on for pages. It's got class one, class three, class five. It's got uh, um, uh, ointments and lotions and solutions. And the students look at these things, and they're trying to figure out what on earth to do with the information. And they kind of look like that. So I say to them as follows, I've got a scenario for you. A patient has been prescribed a topical steroid. He reports that the steroid didn't work. List all possible reasons for that. So I give them a couple of days. They come back with a list. It was the wrong diagnosis. Very good. You got to get the right diagnosis. It wasn't the right steroid because you needed a class one steroid and you you only gave them a class five steroid. Very good. That's what they teach you in school is the crucial thing to know. You've got to know the mechanism of action, the pathophysiology. You've got to know which, you know, on the rabbit ear bioassay, which one comes out to class this and class that, because that's very scientific. Okay, all good, gotta know that. That's acting, like a, that's acting like a doctor and knowing what the deal is. But what's the actual main reasons? What are the main reasons why patients don't get better if you give them a steroid for what is a steroid-responsive dermatosis? One, the tube was too small person goes into a walk-in clinic, they're diagnosed correctly, hooray, it's not a fungus, they get it right, it's an eczema, they get fluocinonide cream, 15 gram tube to cover the body. The patient was afraid of steroids. A lot of patients are afraid of steroids. Why? What do steroids do? They thin the skin and they weaken the immune system. Do they? I've been around 40 years. How many times have I seen steroid atrophy? Two times in extraordinary circumstances? Okay. This is my favorite. The patient was afraid the cream would rub off. Hello, Mrs. Jones, how did the cream work on your legs? I'm sorry, doctor, I couldn't use it. Why was that, Mrs. Jones? Because I was afraid it would come off on the sheets. Really, was it greasy? It's a white vanishing cream. Oh, no, it's not greasy. So what were you afraid of? Well, the thing is, if I get into bed, it's gonna come off on the sheets. So it took me years to figure out what people were saying when they would say things like this. Basically, what they were saying is the following. Aha, you put the cream on, and then you put clothing over it, or you get into bed, and it comes off, and therefore it won't work. Ah, so it's better to put, not to put the cream on in the first place than to put the cream on and have it rub off. Exactly, doctor. Okay, after I finally figured out what people were saying, ever since then, whenever I prescribe a topical steroid, I say, you know what, take the cream and rub it in, and once you can't see it anymore, pause, it can't come off. And the patient's eyes widen as though you have just given them a revelation. Really? I didn't know that. Now, you may think that I'm overdramatizing it. And of course, this doesn't apply to everybody. But the next time you see a patient you prescribe any cream for, which is like, what, tomorrow or after the, uh, the next Monday, try it. You will be amazed if you, if you haven't tried it before at how many people find this little piece of information to be a remarkable revelation that they never thought of. But that's another reason why steroids didn't work. And finally, and number one gets the prize, the rash came back. Do you know how hard it is to get across to people that rashes come back? What happened when you put the cream on? Oh, well, it went away. But it didn't work. Why didn't it work? Because it came back. Now, it's, the, it's not just that people want it to not come back, which, of course, they don't. But the idea that you could have something that keeps coming is simply incomprehensible to a large mass of humanity. So the, the point of this little exercise, the exercise I, did, I have done with my students is this the stuff they teach you in school about what is scientifically relevant is basic and must be known but the actual bar to getting better often has nothing to do with science and everything to do with the patient's brains and what they are thinking about interpreting what's been happening to them okay what kind of knowledge is important to know if you are an accountant, you go to accounting school and you'll learn the principles of accounting. And if you're a lawyer, you do the same in law school. We are exponents of Western medicine. But we are not the only game in town, despite the marvelous marvels of scientific medicine and everything that it has done. Because there's a lot else going out there that is in patients' heads. Here are some, chiropractic, aromatherapy, reflexology, acupuncture, Reiki energy transfer, massage, Ayurvedic medicine, Chinese medicine, iridology. When the patient comes in, you think they're a tabula rasa, a blank slate, but their brains are filled with other ideas that they haven't necessarily thought through, but they know they're out there, and they may or may not be consulting other people who actually practice these other ways of doing. Uh, A famous example from a couple of years ago, you all recognize this gentleman. What are the big circles on his shoulders? Cupping. Cupping. What's cupping? Cupping therapy is an ancient form of alternative medicine. My grandfather had a cupping set, which he never used. It's all over the world, and it's still used now. And it's based upon drawing the evil out of the body. There are a lot of things that do that. You may laugh, you may mock, but how many gold medals have you won? You can buy an embossed cupping set on eBay for $27.99. So this stuff is very much out there. And the British Cupping Society, did you know that there was a British Cupping Society? But there is. And this tells you something about the alternative ways of looking at things. It treats everything How many, we we are used to specific therapies for specific diseases. If I told you that metronidazole cream cured 28 different diseases, you would think I was deranged. How could it possibly treat, treat 28? Maybe two, but not all of them. What's that? That's a reflexology diagram based upon the theory that the body is mapped out on the bottom of the foot, and that if you want to cure that part of the body, you press on it very, very hard. Samuel Hahnemann, the founder of uh, of homeopathy. How many people in this room use homeopathic medications for themselves? Okay. What's the theory of homeopathy? Like cures like. Take something that makes the body sick, dilute it, swallow it, and get better. And you can do math, the mathematical formula that if you do a homeopathic dilution, that you are going to based upon Avogadro, that's Avogadro's number, to show you how many molecules there are in a mole, that the actual homeopathic medication contains no molecules, zero. So you take something that makes you sick, you dilute it until it disappears, and you take it. Now, the question is, does it work? Well, if you ask a patient, what do they say? I take echinacea, I don't get as many colds as I used to, I feel more healthy, I don't get as many breakouts as before, my eczema quieted down, and so on and so on. The point is this. If you explained to your patient why homeopathy does not make any sense, they would not be impressed. They would just think you're annoying because they know that they're getting better when they take it. And that is... The flip side of the interpretation, interpretive faculty that has to do with how people decide that our treatments work. Another example of how products of various kinds can cure plantain. This is what it is claimed to heal. There. No, that's not it. More. Also, splinters and thorns. You can, hear, you can heal a thorn with plantain. The idea is not to mock this. The idea is to point out that this is what your patients are prepared to believe. And you have to, in order to understand how they think, because they is we. We're also patients. And when we go to our doctors, when we're off duty. We are not thinking scientifically. And getting a broader overview of what goes through people's minds. Enables us to better understand patients and to treat them in ways that will be sympathetic, not just sympathetic, effective in ways that we cannot if we simply assume that we are like lawyers speaking law or accountants speaking accounting, we are speaking the scientific truth. Patients cannot think statistically. If I say to a patient, or you say to a patient, that people who are fair-skinned and go out in the sun, have, they will have much more percentage-wise skin cancer than people who are dark-skinned and don't go in the sun. Okay? What do actual patients say? They come running into the office on a late summer afternoon and say, I know when this mole turned cancerous. Last Wednesday at 4, because it got red in the sun and it was turning cancer. And it's even people who are mathematically sophisticated cannot get away from thinking in this way. And it comes up a lot, sun exposure just being one of them, where people think that if they go out in in the sun for 10 extra minutes without sunscreen, they will burst into cancer. One of them is my daughter-in-law but I am much too smart a father-in-law to ever comment about something like this. I merely do what every in-law should do, which is, as the saying goes, to keep my mouth shut and my wallet open. I decide which questions I will answer, not you. I'm gonna skip this. Um, One of the points I would always make to my students is, We're supposedly exponents of scientific medicine. What happens if the patient asks you a question which has no scientific answer? Why doesn't it have a scientific answer? Not because science has not yet managed to figure it out, but because it can't have a scientific answer. Why? Because scientific answers require measurement. How do you know something is the best treatment? How do you know something is the best moisturizer? Here's a bunch of moisturizers. They're all all endorsed by TotalBeauty.com, whatever the heck that means. Okay? How do you know something is a better treatment than another treatment? Okay, you have to be, you have to validate by evidence. You have to show that it has lower morbidity, lower mortality, less fever, less itch, reduced frequency. You have to measure something. Okay? What's the best place for a wedding? Can you measure that? What's my best color? What's the best car? What's the best route? You like tolls or you don't like tolls? These are questions of value. They are not questions of science. Unfortunately, patients didn't get the memo. They ask them anyway. How do you make acne scarring, by which people don't mean scarring, they mean red marks, how do you make it go away faster? Well, you don't pick them and you wait. doctor can't you tell me something to do to make my pimples go away faster because if you don't tell me I'll go to the drugstore and they'll give me an on-the-spot cream with medically approved benzoyl peroxide or a drawing salve who here knows what a drawing salve is well they've only been around for several thousand years here are drawing salves One of them on the on the on the right is the escharotic treatment for skin cancer, where people lie down on the floor and have people people who lost their license in Croatia put black stuff on their face, and uh, cause scarring because it draws the evil out. Okay, so what I would always tell students is, how can I make this people when people ask you questions that you don't have scientific answers to? You pretend you're not doctor. You pretend your mom. What if you said to your mom, I have a boo-boo, and your mom says, I'm sorry, I have no double-blind controlled evidence-based medicine to give you, so just suck it up, kid. Part of our job as clinicians is to answer questions that people ask, even if our profession does not give us validated answers in which, with which to answer them. So take-home messages. Know your patients. I will give one example, and then I'm going to conclude. Avoid excessive sun exposure. If you say, OK, don't go out in the sun. Uh, let's say doxycycline, minocycline. Okay, it always says on every bottle, avoid excessive sun exposure. What is excessive? does it tell you. What actually happens? The patient says, OK, that's it. I'm not taking doxycycline until October because they said, be careful in the sun. Take medicine on an empty stomach. Why? Because it increases absorption. What actually happens? The patient forgotten, ate breakfast, and they don't take it at all. The purpose of the instruction was to increase absorption. The result of the instruction is no absorption. This is another example of the interface between what patients actually hear and what you want them to say. Wait 20 minutes after washing before applying Retin-A. Nobody can wait 20 minutes after applying Retin-A. Everybody goes to sleep. So they can't listen to that, and so on and so on. Okay. So uh, another example of, and the cream won't rub off, I've already covered. Will your patient accept your advice? If you suspect that a patient, for instance, is a member of the alternative health community and is suspicious in general of what you have to say, and of steroids in particular, then you need to negotiate with them because they think it's all these things. So you have to know your customers. And finally, what does the diagnosis mean to the patient? That looks like tinea. The patient assumes they can't wear sandals anymore because it can't be fixed and they can't wear nail polish, why can't they wear nail polish? Why are people, why do people who think, who by the way, think that every single yellowish nail is fungus, and they're embarrassed as all get out to walk around like that, they won't polish their nails. Why not? Because it seals in the fungus. So one of the best things you can do for your women patients, especially since many of them don't have fungus, they have onycholysis, is to tell them A, it's not fungus, and B, hide it. You can do more for them that way than practically every, anything else you could do for them at that particular visit. Patient has dandruff. They think they can only shampoo once a week. Why do they think so? Because they think it's dry scalp. And if you shampoo too often, you will dry out the scalp. It's not dry scalp. It's inflamed scalp. Another very homely, everyday type of piece of instruction. And just to get back to our friend Marina, what does somebody who has this do if they're women? Men get it too, but men don't wear makeup, so I nothing to throw out. I'll throw out all my makeup again and again and again. And so on. So I will conclude in two ways. One, just to think, to suggest that as professionals we ask, questions that we are not trained to ask or trained not to ask what does my advice mean to my client how will my client understand what I'm saying how will my client my client interpret improvement and understand what I'm saying to him now in general when you talk to people which is hard to do when you're standing up here in the darkness how do you know if they're agreeing with you what do your friends and acquaintances do when you're talking to them they nod if they're not nodding, they're not with you. So the only way for you to tell if you're getting through is to watch their eyes. And if they're staring at you in terror, then, you're making some, then you have a problem. But you have a problem. We have a problem. We're not allowed to look at people's eyes anymore. We have to look at the screen. Acting like a doctor is essential to what we do. Nothing I have said, doctor and mid-level provider, forgive me. We have to know the facts. What's the diagnosis? What's the etiology? What's the pathogenesis? What's the best therapy? What's the prognosis? That is the given that you don't need me to tell you. But thinking like a patient is what does the diagnosis mean to the patient? What are the assumptions about cause? What makes sense to the patient? What other experts are they listening to? How are they gonna interpret successor complications and what do our words mean uh, when we use them to our patients who are using them otherwise? So I would like to conclude by speaking to you professional to professional because we're all professionals. The thing about professionals, profession, professions is that the, the pitch the profession makes to, the, to society, to the public is that professions are essential and have always been here. Now, I trained in pediatrics first. I'm a dermatologist. So those are my two professions. The profession of pediatrics began in 1802 with the founding of a hospital for sick children in Paris. Now, there were always children, and there were always doctors who took care of children. But there were not always pediatricians. Pediatrics came to America in 1853 in the person of Abraham Jacobi from Germany. I trained at Jacoby Hospital in the Bronx, This a general hospital. I have no idea who Abraham Jacoby was, and I wouldn't have cared any more than you care who Seattle was. It's just a historical artifact. But what pediatrics did, eventually, was to say, if you're going to do a good job for kids, you need somebody who specializes in kids. Dermatology began in 1870 with Ferdinand von Hebra, in Vienna, founded the Viennese school. He had many famous uh, students, one of whom was Moritz Kepeschi, or you know him as Kaposi. And another one was Karl Paul Gerson Una, who was the technical consultant for the Beiersdorf Corporation, makers of Userin and Nivea. He was a good businessman too, was Una. So that was the beginning of the profession. And by the way, you should know that although dermatology is the world's coolest profession and sought after now, In those days, it was only gone into by people who couldn't get in anywhere else. And why was that? Because it was dermatology and syphilology until 1960 in the United States. And who was it who wanted to take care of low-end types with venereal disease? Only people who couldn't get into medicine and surgery. But that's another story. So the thing is, there was always skin, and there were always doctors who took care of skin, but there were no special doctors who took care of skin until von Hebra founded his Viennese school. So the deal all professions make is this. We will make things better for society if you give us the opportunity to separate ourselves from anybody else. Is that true? It is true. Do you think plastic surgery would be anything like it is now if it was only general surgeons who were doing it? Of course not. So the conspiracy that uh, George Bernard Shaw was referring to is this we act as though we are working for the benefit of society and we are but we're also working for the benefit of our profession and there's nothing wrong with that but we should be aware that it cuts both ways so what does this mean it's been my good fortune to work with physician assistants for the last 18 years and I've worked with several iterations of them the ones who are working with me now have worked with me for over 10 years, one of them introduced me before, and it's been a revelation to me at first, but no longer so, that the PAs I have worked with have been intelligent, compassionate, thorough, the finest uh, colleagues anybody could ever want. And the, the thing is though, that professionally speaking, You guys and gals are Johnny's come lately and Janie's come lately in the professional realm because PAs didn't start till the mid 60s. And as you may know, it started at Duke uh, with a doctor who brought in some Navy corpsmen based upon knowledge that the armed forces developed in World War II where people had to be brought up speed and in rapid succession. Now, in professional terms, that's yesterday. It takes time for a profession to become established so that society accepts it as something which is valid and should be supported. Because as intelligent and thorough and knowledgeable as you may be, without the professional superstructure that gives you the right to practice and the possibility of being paid for what you do, all of your knowledge and expertise is of no value. Without licensure and without professional backing, what you have to offer is nothing at all. Therefore, I have two good examples, uh, two, two, two pieces of advice for you. One, become the best that you can be at what you do, which is, I assume, why you're here today or during this, during this conference. And two, support your professional associations who are in the business of establishing your role within society and the respect which society offers you. Because the two together will make you what you are and what you can be. <coughs> Excuse me. I wish you all the best in your careers. And I thank you very much for inviting me. And now I invite you all to please, for heaven's sakes, get something to eat. Good night. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.